Today we finish our kind of mini-series in chapter one of the book of Romans. We, we preach our fifth and final sermon here in, in Romans 1, 18 to 32, and I believe with all my heart that this sermon is going to be really helpful for many in our church, hopefully a perfect mix of conviction and encouragement, and so I hope you're glad to be here this morning. Um, and what I want to do this morning is, first of all, say to you, if you're visiting or you're new, you're joining us in the middle of a conversation that is has been a really important conversation. We've looked at kind of the logic of Paul's description of our world and the brokenness of our world. And as we've had this conversation, it's led us to have talks about the issue of human sexuality and in particular, the issue of homosexuality, which as you know, is a delicate and controversial thing to talk about in our culture today. But we've been talking about it in here. And so if you're new or visiting, welcome to River West. We're glad to have you, okay? Here's what I wanna do. I wanna start with a story today that kind of illustrates where I'm going to go. It's the story of a man named Beckett Cook. And what you need to know about Beckett Cook is that Beckett Cook has spent many, many years of his life living in Los Angeles. He has had a successful career as a production and set designer in Hollywood and the fashion industry. And what you need to know about Beckett Cook is that Beckett Cook is a gay man. And in his memoir that he released several years ago, Beckett tells the story of his powerful conversion to Christ and becoming a Christian. And the reason I want to tell the story today is that as I read Beckett's story, and by the way, if you're interested, you can buy his book and read the story yourself. I'm going to do my best to represent it. But as I read his story along the way in the first couple of chapters, I kept thinking, wow, what kind of a church had the culture and in place and the individual Christians in place to love on Beckett, to receive Beckett, to wisely answer his questions, to invite him to church so that this man became a follower of Jesus? What kind of church would allow a man like Beckett to come to Christ. He tells the story, it was a typical Saturday morning, he was with one of his friends who was also a gay man, and they would often spend Saturday in LA, and they ended up in a very bougie coffee shop in Silver Lake, and they're sitting there enjoying their cappuccinos, and they're having a conversation, and Beckett said, something happened that I've never seen in LA in 15 years. A man in his mid-30s who was really well-dressed walked through the coffee shop. He had a coffee cup in one hand, and he had a book in the other hand that had on the cover the words, Romans Commentary. And I was immediately hooked at this moment, okay, in the story. I thought, Romans Commentary. How cool is that? And Beckett thought, I know that's a religious book. He was raised in the Catholic Church. And he thought, who is this guy? Who from that point on in his story becomes known as Romans Commentary Guy, okay? And, and Roman's commentary guy walks to the coffee shop and he sits down at a table full of young hipsters who all have their Bibles open and he starts hugging and there's this joy at the table and Beckett said, I experienced sort of this turn in my stomach that felt sour and yet this strange intrigue at what I saw happening at this table. 
So they spent their time together at the table, uh, Romans commentary guy, and then Bible people, as Beckett calls them. And then the, the Bible study ends, and most of the people leave except for one young man who stays at the table, a man named Craig. And Beckett and his friend decided, we're going to pounce on this guy. And they walk over, sit at the table, and they engage this young man who they now call Bible guy, in a conversation where they grill him, they ask questions, questions about Christianity, questions about faith, questions about the Bible, a lot of the questions that you receive probably as a Christian. And finally, Beckett said, I got to the point where I had to ask the $64,000 question. What about the church and homosexuality? And Beckett said, I was amazed at the composure of this young man, as he looked into my eyes with love and and, and he was honest about what the Bible teaches about this issue. And he even, Beckett said, he even shared with me his own personal experience of same-sex attraction growing up as a young man, but how he had become convinced of what the Bible teaches about sexuality and how he had become a Christian and was living in the way of Jesus. And Beckett thought, this was not what I was expecting. Part of me wanted to pull away from the table and throw something across the room. And part of me was shocked and surprised at the way this man carried himself with so much composure. Sort of this balance of truth and grace and love. I felt his love for me. And he said, just as I was about to leave that day, the man said, why don't you come and join me that next Sunday and come to church? I promise you, it's not what you think it's going to be. And so for the next five days, uh, over the, he didn't go the next morning. He waited for the next five, six, seven days. He struggled. He wrestled. He, he was torn. He didn't want to go. And then he was strangely curious about what he might experience. And finally, on Sunday morning, he picked up the phone and he called this man who had shared his number and said, I I would like to come and, and visit your church. He said he walked up to the front door and there was a greeter there who said, welcome, we love you, who he then called loving lady after that. And from that, and the story, we got Romans commentary guy, Bible guy, and loving lady, all right? He walked in, he sat down, the music started, he thought the music was weird. How many of you thought the music was weird the first time you came to church? He was like, this is kind of cheesy and weird, but then he, he, it strangely warmed to him. And then out of nowhere, the music stopped. And Beckett said, you're not going to believe who came up on the stage. Roman's commentary guy walked up on the stage and he preached a message for which every single word that left his mouth, I knew without a shadow of a doubt was true. Even the parts that I didn't like. He opened the book of Romans and he preached from Romans. And Beckett said at the end of the service, There was a prayer team that gathered. I went over and I said, I'm not a Christian and I have no idea what to do right now. (laughs) And the person said, that's okay. How about if I just pray for you? And he began to weep as he thought, the way this person prayed for me, I felt their love for me. And when he returned to his seat, here's what Beckett described. All of a sudden, a giant wave of God's presence came crashing over me. A flood of intense warmth, emotion, and power coursed through me. I didn't understand it at the time, but I now believe it was the Holy Spirit. 
I had no prior experience with this, no framework for it, and no way of anticipating it, but it was the most penetrating moment I had ever experienced. I was utterly overwhelmed, and I started bawling uncontrollably. It was a kind of weeping that I had never experienced, an extremely deep, retching sob. In a way, it was like an infant's cry, which makes sense, considering I had just been born again. Amen? Amen. And I wondered as I read that story, what kind of church? What an amazing church. What would it be like to become a church like that? This morning I've set uh, an impossible task. We're going to finish Romans 1. So in your Bible, you can look at it, 28 to 32. We're going to preach the rest. I'm going to try to tie up a lot of loose ends today. So we've been preaching for these five weeks, and I know there's loose ends. I know as you've been sitting out there trying to stay with me throughout this, you've been, you've been agitated, you've been encouraged, you've been disrupted, you've been angry at me, you've been in love with me, you've experienced all of it, right? And along the way, you've had questions pop up, and you've thought to yourself, okay, but what about dot, dot, dot? So today, this is the but what about sermon, all right? I'm going to try to answer some of those whatabouts. Because we talked about a lot. We've broken down Paul's logic in Romans 1, 18 to 32. We've looked at what Paul has said about wrath, that God's wrath is not a ra- irrational or reactionary. It's a just response to a world that has said, even though the evidence about you is obvious, we're going to suppress the truth of that evidence because we don't want to acknowledge that you're king and Lord. And so we'll create our own gods, gods that we can control. And Paul says the process of that exchange sends society into a downward spiral of corruption and sin, where often sexuality is the first domino to fall. And then a couple weeks ago, I talked about why it's so hard to talk about sexuality in the church, and I had five words that I shared with you. And then last Sunday, I went back and said, okay, now we need to talk about what the Bible is for. We need to show this beautiful biblical vision of the purpose of sexuality. How can you know what's right or wrong if you don't know what the purpose of sexuality is in Scripture? And we talked about that. And now today, we come to the final message where I'll try to address some of your what-ifs. You've thought, well, wait a minute. What about people who are hurt? What about the harm that's been caused to people in the LGBTQ community? What about how difficult it feels to hold truth and grace and balance? Is that even possible? What about the fact that Jesus never said anything about homosexuality? What about the fact that, that people who experience that from their childhood feel like they were created that way by God? Why would God then tell them that there might be something that they cannot do with that? And you have whatabouts, whatabouts, whatabouts but I have a question too. I have an agenda this morning. And my agenda is this. Do we want to be a church where gay and lesbian people feel welcome? Do we want to be that kind of a church? Now someone might say, Pastor, you're asking a question that Romans is not asking or addressing. I don't see that in Romans. And what I hope to show you now as we finish this text is that If you read Romans 1 rightly, that is a question we will ask. 
If we understand the power of the gospel, if we understand the heart of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God towards the world, a broken world, one of the primary questions we would ask today in our culture is, do we want to be a church that makes all people feel welcome as they walk in our doors so that we can love them with the truth of the gospel? It's a very important question. Will you look now with me, Romans 1, 28, 32? And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not ought to be done. Now, this is the third time now that Paul has used that phrase, God gave them up. Remember, this is like God says, God's wrath, the first sort of wave of the wrath of God is God just simply says, okay, you want to you wanna walk? You want to turn your back on me? You want to suppress truth and unrighteousness? You want to worship created things rather than me? God says, I will let you go your way. And here Paul repeats it again. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not ought to be done. Look at this. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Very deep, very intense. There are three ways the church ought to respond when we get to the end of Romans 1. And you might want to write these down. Three commitments that we should make. The first commitment is the commitment to humility. Or what I'm going to call gospel humility. A primary function of Romans 1 and the list that we just read is to push out of the church any hint of self-righteous pride. There simply cannot be room for that when you finish that list. This list is meant to be exhausting to read, but not exhaustive. You know what I mean by that? Paul could have said more. He could have shared more words. He could have kept going. So it's not exhaustive, but it is exhausting to read. I don't know about you, but I read it and I find myself being described by more of those words than not. And I hope you do too. We look at it again, just walk, walk, walk over the words starting in verse 29, end of 29. You just read the words. Okay, and I read them, and I go, covetous, check, Adam McMurray, <laughs> envious, check, gossip, check, haughty, check, boastful, check, disobedient to my parents, check, mom and dad, you're listening online right now, my parents watch online, okay, so I, I'm confessing this now, ask me about it later, but anyway, okay, disobedient to your parents, check, right? If we finish reading Romans 1 in a posture where we're looking down on someone else, wherever they are in that list, whether it's their sexual orientation or some other aspect of the list, if we finish looking down on someone else, 
We've totally missed the point. And the reason I know this is look, look where Paul's going. This whole passage, in one sense, it's a massive setup. He's luring in what, what he's going to describe as sort of the self-righteous Jewish person. In the church in Rome, there were two kinds of Christians. There were Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. We talked about this early on. And they were both sort of looking down on each other. And the Jewish Christians were looking down on the Gentile Christians because they felt like they were lawless and, and sinful. And the way Paul writes Romans 1, especially he, as he nears the end, part of his purpose was to stir up sort of the self-righteous person where they're finally going, yeah, you preach it, Paul. And they're looking down on someone. And then Paul lands the right hook. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. There's just simply no room for self-righteousness in Romans 1. Absolute humility. I should read the list, and when I finish the list, I should be emotional. I shouldn't be feeling I shouldn't be looking down on myself necessarily. I should be looking up to the grace of God that God would love a sinner like me. Or as Paul said, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul would write lists like this. He wrote one in 1 Timothy where he had a list of all these sins, including one of the other places where he talks about same-sex sexuality. And when he gets to the end of the list, he doesn't stand back in pride or self-righteousness. He falls to his knees as he's writing. And he says, if Jesus came to die for me, then Jesus came to die for everyone. Because I am the worst. I am the worst. Humility. Gospel humility involves the eradication of any and all forms of homophobia from the church. All kinds. As Preston Sprinkle has written, who's a Christian scholar, he's written a lot on issues around this, he said Christians should be a hundred times more horrified by homophobia than non-Christians. A hundred times. He actually, you know what else he says? He says Christians should be more horrified by homophobia than people in the LGBTQ community. Because we know the gospel. We know the grace of God. We should be horrified. And so Sprinkle goes on. By the way, homophobia, properly defined, is irrational fear, dislike, or prejudice towards gay people. And Preston says, he writes, we need to put it to death. We need to stab it, kill it, bury it. And if it tries to resurrect, we need to step on its head. I like that. Let's kill it once and for all. If you hear someone who makes a derogatory comment in your friend group or your peer group, or they tell a, a joke, a gay joke, or they say something in passing that would be hurtful to someone who's wrestling with their sexuality, 
Be that guy who makes the moment awkward or be that gal, all right? Be that person who says, hey, that's actually not funny, you know? You can lighten it up and say, would you worship Jesus with that mouth? I don't care. But be the person who steps in and says, you know what? That's actually not funny. It's not funny. As a Christian pastor, my job is to stand for truth. And the truth is that homophobia grieves the heart of Jesus and it tarnishes the reputation of the gospel. And in a community where it's hiding, believe me, people who are struggling with their sexuality will feel it and they will stay away. And in the spirit of full humility... I'm guilty. I'm standing before you saying that in my life, some of my greatest embarrassments when I look back on things I've said in a cavalier way, jokes that I cracked when I was in high school, comments that I made in passing that I never would have made if I knew that there was someone in my circle who was wrestling with sexuality. And I'm, I'm standing before you repenting of that. Gospel humility should create a safe place where people can talk openly about what they're experiencing in their sexuality. The church is supposed to be a safe place. And it will be safe if we read Romans 1 rightly because we will be so humble that we will talk openly about our brokenness. It's easy for one person to start talking about what they're struggling with if they hear someone else lean into that and say, I'm really struggling. Tim Keller has the most amazing illustration. He says, imagine two kinds of waiting rooms. Now think about this. This is so great. Two kinds of waiting rooms and the difference of the culture in each room. One room is the waiting room for a job interview and the other room is the waiting room for the doctor's office. In the waiting room for the job interview, everyone is preparing to put their best foot forward, lead with their resume, talk about how amazing they are. I'm a people person. I love people, okay? And in the waiting room to the doctor's office, you're preparing to talk about how much you hurt, how much you're broken, how much you need help. And Keller says, the church is a waiting room to the doctor, the great physician, and it creates safety. Are you safe? This is ultimately a Christian humility question. Are you a good listener? Are you gentle? Are you compassionate? Are you gracious? Are you kind? Is your small group safe? Is your Bible study safe? Is your, is your friend group safe? If someone entered that group and needed to talk about things that they were experiencing, would they feel safe? And I'm asking myself this question too. Let's ask this question. I think of Jesus. I think of the way he treated people. I think of Jesus with Zacchaeus in his living room with all of Zacchaeus' friends there. And somehow, though this was the son of the living God, Zacchaeus felt totally safe to begin to unpack all of his brokenness. I think of the hemorrhaging woman who went through the crowd and tried to touch Christ's cloak. And what did Christ do? Mark tells us he sat in the dust with her and he listened for who knows how long as she told her whole story. 
And I read the gospels and I say, I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like that. And I hope you do too. Humility. It's gospel commitment number one. Commitment number two is a commitment to balance. Balance. So humility, but balance. There's an amazing amount of gospel balance in the passage we've just studied for the last five Sundays. On the one hand, Paul takes sin seriously, and he never backs away. At no point does he say, it doesn't matter what you do, just as long as you're happy. At no point does he say, it's not that big of a deal. No, Paul says, sin is serious, and a society that suppresses the truth of God will begin to spiral into decay. And he's strong in his language. But on the other hand, Paul takes the power of grace just as serious. He says, God loves to save sinners. I believe in the power of the gospel. Paul doesn't say, what you have done is so bad that God actually could never love you. And not only that, Paul never says, what you have done is so bad that I could never love you. I could never spend time with you. I could never share the gospel with you or bring the love of Christ into your life. And so what we see when we study Romans is this unbelievable balance. Think about how difficult it is to find balance. Truth, yes, but also love and grace. Can I ask you a question? Is it possible to hold truth and love in balance? in this conversation about sexuality in our culture. And specifically when we talk about same-sex sexuality, is it possible to hold truth and grace in balance? I want you to think about that question with me. By the way, this is one of the biggest whatabouts I've gotten, okay? So I've had, I've had dozens of people, what about, but I feel like it's so hard. How do I do this? It feels so difficult. Where's the balance? You've probably wrestled with this in relationships with a family member at work. How do I do it, Lord? Is it possible to maintain the historic Christian view of sexuality and marriage, what we've just unpacked over the last five Sundays, but hold that view in a way that communicates the extravagant love of God and the scandalous grace of Christ? towards LGBT people? Is it possible? Now, some listening are answering in your minds right now, you're answering, no, it's not. The historic Christian view is inherently unloving. Some listening online, maybe even some in this room, thinking it's unloving. And so in order to actually become loving, what we have to do is we have to change the view. But I'm gonna very lovingly push back on that this morning. I'm gonna push on that. Okay. My immediate response to the question, is it possible to hold truth and love and balance, is it's got to be possible because Jesus did it in every single interaction that he ever had. Amen? Yes. Amen. Jesus held truth and love in 
perfect balance. So what we're really talking about is just how difficult it is to be like Jesus, right? That's what's hard in this conversation. I don't know how to do it. And sometimes maybe I think I've even found balance. Maybe I'm in an interaction with someone and I think I was very, very gracious and Jesus is sitting on the throne going, actually, buddy, you should have listened for 30 minutes more before you opened your cake hole or whatever Jesus would say in that moment, okay? (laughs) Or I might think I was really truthful in that moment and Jesus is actually on his throne saying, actually, you kind of... You kind of were not courageous enough and you needed to bring truth to bear in that conversation. And so what we're really doing in this part of our balance is we're saying, where do I actually look for the standard? Do I determine if I found balance or does the person on the other end of my interaction determine if balance was found? And neither of those is right. The person who gets to determine balance is the creator, king, savior of the universe. And I go to him each day at the end of the day and fall on my knees and say, Lord, help me. Did I, how did I do? How did I do? Jesus held to the historic Christian view of sexuality and marriage. He did. By the way, a very popular argument today, at the, at kind of at the popular level, is that, well, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. And maybe you've heard that. And what I want to do just very briefly is say that argument is really not used anymore at all at the scholarly level. Even affirming authors don't use that argument. That's more of an Instagram argument, not an InterVarsity Press argument or something. Because here's the problem, and I don't mean to be mean-spirited. It just, it, it doesn't work because there was lots of things that Jesus never addressed. And the reason he didn't address them is because his Jewish audience wasn't debating about them at all. So they weren't even wondering about it, so Jesus wouldn't address it. And this, the, the Jewish community that Jesus was ministering to was settled on the historic biblical view of sexuality. But Jesus held that view, and he held it in a way where people felt deeply loved by him. Remember the woman caught in adultery? Amazing. Woman caught in adultery. Woman is dragged into public. By, by Pharisees. And a lot of times as Christians, we go, yeah, rush to the end where Jesus said, he said to her, go and sin no more, which he did. He said, go and sin no more. But one of the things we rush past is the moment where he scolded the stone throwers and said, who are you to pick up a stone? And he did it in front of this woman so that she could feel his mercy and his love for her. I love that. This balance, grace and truth. Have you ever wondered, I wonder if the woman knew what Jesus' position on adultery was. Let me tell you something, she knew, okay? There was not a doubt in her mind. And brothers and sisters, can I tell you something? When, when someone that you know who is part of the LGBTQ community, when they find out you're a Christian, they don't wonder for a second what your position is. Even if they peg you wrong, They immediately go, based on what I've read in the media or my experiences, I have a feeling I know what this person believes. You do not need to reinforce immediately your view of sexuality. What they don't know is your position on grace. That's what they don't know. They don't know whether you will love them. 
but they immediately know what you think about marriage and sexuality. Several years ago, I got an email from a man who was new to our community, and it was an incredible email. He said, he said in the email, uh, my husband and I just moved to Lake Oswego, um, and we are wondering if we're welcome to worship at River West. And I, I responded in within five seconds. He probably thought it was weird because it was probably like this guy's sitting at his computer. I responded, and I said, by the way, if I haven't responded that fast to you, don't take it personally. But anyway, <clears throat> I, was like, I was like Jim Carrey in that God movie. And I was like, of course you are welcome. Please, I cannot wait to meet you. And he, he worshiped at our church. His husband had some health issues, so his husband didn't attend as much. But he worshiped here for many years. And, uh, and then we were, I was preparing to get to a place where I was going to preach through a couple passages in Genesis where I was going to talk about marriage and sexuality. And I thought, you know, I really have grown to have a, a, a godly affection for this guy. He's sweet. He's coming. He's worshiping. We've never had the conversation. And I felt like it would be wrong for me because he would send me prayer requests. I thought it would be inappropriate for me to just jump up on a Sunday and preach a message, not having had a conversation with him about the church's view of sexuality and marriage. And so I sent him an email and said, can we spend some time together. And he was like, totally. And he came in and we prayed and we talked and I was so nervous. Okay. I, there was like, my face was red. I was so nervous. And I finally said, I, I just, here's what's going to happen. And I just want to tell you, I'm going to teach through a passage in Genesis and I'm going to explain and sort of defend the historic Christian view of marriage and sexuality, that marriage is for one man and one woman until death to his part. And I just, I, I, I care for you so much and I just want you to hear that from me first before you come in on a Sunday. And he goes, okay. <laughs> and he goes, I already knew that. I already knew that was the church's position. I said, you did? He's like, of course I did. I was like, okay. Can we hug it out? Like, should we hug this out right now? Like, what should we do? He was like, I never questioned that. I questioned whether you would love me. Gospel balance means we take the time to think more deeply about complex issues. Especially when it comes to the topic of same-sex attraction. There are so many aspects to this conversation. Balance means being willing to acknowledge nuance when there's nuance. And it means avoiding simplistic answers. And this applies to both sides of the argument, both sides of the debate. There's simplicity on both sides. For example, Matthew Vines has written a book called God and the Gay Christian. And it's an affirming book. And in that book, he has argued that the historic Christian view is harmful to gay and lesbian people. And here's what he wrote. 
He said, condemning same-sex relationships is harmful to LGBT people. Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount that good trees bear good fruit. But the church's rejection of same-sex relationships has caused tremendous, needless suffering to lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. By the way, this concern, it gets raised in a lot of other ways. So you probably have heard somebody say, is it good or is it loving? Is it even realistic to expect same-sex attracted Christians to remain single? Like, is that a realistic thing to ask? Isn't that harmful to someone to ask someone to remain single? Doesn't the view itself encourage mistreatment of people in the LGBT community? These are important questions, River West. And you can't answer them quickly, which is why I've slowed down. And I'm asking you to slow down. Because the very first thing that the balanced, humble Christian is going to do is admit, yes, there have been times where people who, thinking they were representing Jesus, did things and said things that created incredible amounts of pain and harm towards other people. But my question is, is that the result of the view itself or is that a result of abuses of the view? Is the view inherently causing harm or is the view being misused by people in the church and that's what's causing harm? Matthew Vines seems to be arguing that if Jesus invites a same-sex attracted person into a life of following in his way, Jesus is robbing that person of something that's intrinsic to human thriving. Sex and romance. So what Vine seems to be saying is sex and romance are basic to human thriving. And if you don't have that in your life, you are destined for a life of loneliness and misery. Which is an interesting argument since Jesus experienced neither of those things. And so in the spirit of balance, as a Christian pastor, there are times where I stand and I say hard things to the church. We've got to stop and move to the middle. But I also have to stand and say, I have to call out out of balance thinking on both sides of the argument. Because that argument is deeply flawed. It sounds a lot like the idolatry that we talked about last Sunday. Where in the church and outside the church, we sometimes idolize marriage and sex as if that is the only way you're going to experience happiness in this life. But I know single people who are so glad they're not married. They're looking at you guys and they're like, that looks awful. No, I'm kidding. That's mean. That was mean spirited. And they're not thinking that. They are. They are. No, they're not. They're not. Balance. Balance. I love the way Sam Alberry said it. Sam Alberry is a, a pastor in the UK. He's same-sex attracted. He's a single celibate man. Here's what he wrote. I'll put this I'll quote up so you can hear it. It's not the teaching of Jesus that tells you that life is not worth living if you can't be fulfilled sexually. That a life without sex is no life at all. It's not biblical Christianity that, that insists someone's sexual disposition is so foundational to who they are 
and that to fail to affirm their particular leading is to attack who that person is at their core. All this comes not from biblical Christianity, but from Western culture's highly distorted view of what it means to be a human. When an idol fails you, the real culprit turns out to be the person who's urged you to worship it, not the person who's tried to take it away. On the other end of the spectrum, though, Christians can be, if we're not careful, we can be extremely cavalier and insensitive about the extreme sacrifices that would be involved in a same-sex attracted person following Jesus and just write that off. Well, of course, it's just easy. Just be single, be celibate, as if we would consider that. So here's another quote from a scholar named Bridget Rivera. She writes, as a celibate lesbian, I'm stuck at an interesting intersection. On the one hand, many Christians question my faith or accuse me of sin just for being same-sex attracted. On the other hand, many use stories like mine as proof that other gay people ought to be celibate like me. Ironically, it's often the same people who do both. Curiously, in all the conversations I've had, I've rarely met a straight person who admonishes themselves to be celibate on account of my story. My celibacy is always a lesson to be given to the gays, but not the straights. This is so profound. Because sometimes if we're not careful in the church, we can so take for granted things that we never, maybe... We never consider the, the noble and, and incredible sacrifice that would be required of a person to follow Jesus and even consider it in our own lives. The Bible has an extremely high view of singleness, very high. And it has an extremely high view of celibacy as a very possible way of living. Is it easy? No. Is it for everyone? N- no. The Bible speaks of singleness as a life that is a, can be a gift of God with advantages and opportunities. And so balance. All I'm doing is I'm saying balance. Let's just keep talking. Keep balancing. This is where I, I want to say something. I'm so proud of our student ministry staff. Bear with me while I, I tell you something about our student ministry team. Pastor Jeff, Joseph, Tiffany. You, here's what you need to know about our whole student ministry team if there's a team in our church that's had to think about all these issues and do it well with humility, it's like, I, Tiffany, I want to honor you. Tiffany's here. I just want to honor Tiffany. Now, stop, because now she's mad at me. So that, didn't, that backfired. <laughs> but they, they've thought so deeply about this. And so this is why I've asked Tiffany and, and Jeff to be a part of the forum we're going to do. I'm going to put up a, this is a shameless plug right now, River West, but we're going to have a forum and they're going to help Tiffany and Marianne and, and Christopher and Jeff are going to sit on a panel. Jeff and I are going to do some sh- presenting and we're going to talk about a, a part of this conversation where we need to find balance. The issue of identity. So the identity part of sexuality is a big fight right now in our culture where on one end of the fight, maybe in more of what, Outside of the church, people might say, your, your sexuality is the most important thing about your identity. And then inside the church, we can overreact and say, it's got nothing to do with your identity. 
And what we're going to try to do is say, let's find some biblical balance. Let's open our Bibles. Let's talk about this. And it's going to take time. It's going to take a forum to do it. So join us 6 p.m. next Sunday night right here, child care. It should be good. Conviction number three, or commitment number three, I'll close with this. Commitment number three is the commitment to conviction. And what I mean by conviction is gospel conviction. I mean a church that actually believes what Paul says about the power of the gospel. We believe this. We don't give lips. We say, yes, Romans 1, 16. Do you see it in your Bible? Look at your Bible or look on the screen. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It can save Adam McMurray. It can save Beckett Cook. And it can save you and the person on either side of you. And we believe this with all of our hearts. Did you know that the Christians in Rome who read Paul's letter, think about this, they witnessed one of the greatest revivals in the history of the world. Countless salvations. People started flooding into Christian churches. And do you know who the people were? They were Romans. They were living into the list that we just read with all of their energy. (laughs) All right? Every word in that list from envy to, to me and my disobedience of my parents. The Romans were living that in spades. And not only that, these were the people who were killing Christians. And what's amazing is that the people who got saved by the gospel were those people. So somehow the church found a way to stand for truth and then love people who were outside of the church in that moment. And a revival broke out. And what I want to say is, I actually believe that what we're living through right now, River West, in our world, in our age, this is like, this could be the church's finest hour. This could be our finest hour. Because we have, we have in our possession the actual power of God to save people's lives and bring them to Jesus. We have it. And all we have to do is hold on to it in truth and love. Truth and love. Amen? I'm going to share one last quote as we go. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Um, This is a quote by a man named Russell Moore. I I read this in an essay that he wrote a couple years ago called The Sexual Revolution's Coming Refugee Crisis. The sexual revolution's coming refugee crisis. What he says in this article is, revolutions always create refugees. They always leave people behind whose lives are tattered because the revolution didn't live up to its promises. He talks about how the sexual revolution of the 60s, okay, created a refugee crisis that we now know as the Jesus movement. Have you ever thought about this? All these hippies who had been part of the free love movement and their lives were broken, they started rushing into these churches in Southern California and there was this revival and Russell Moore says, that will happen again because the revolution we're in now, they're writing checks they cannot cash. But he said, here's the key and here's the quote and I'll I'll end with this. 
there are two sorts of churches that won't be able to reach the refugees of the future. The first is the church that's so scared of people that we scream at them in anger and condemnation. If we see ourselves as people who are losing a culture rather than people who have been sent on a mission to a culture, this is how we will be. If we do not love our mission field, we, have, we will have nothing to say to it. The second kind of church that will fail refugees is the church that gives up or silences its convictions because they're not popular. If we're silent about the gospel or what the gospel says about sexual immorality, we will not only lose our mission, but we will also lose the respect of those we're seeking to reach. How can they trust us with words of life that can overpower the grave when they see that we're not even willing to go against the spirit of the age? The sexual revolution cannot keep its promises. Many people are going to be disappointed. And even before they can admit it to others or to themselves, they're going to ask, is this all there is? And we need churches that can keep the light lit to the old paths. They can keep the waters of baptism ready. We need to be the people who can remind a wounded world of what we've come to hear and believe. Come unto me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that's good news for refugees like us. Let's pray. Father, what kind of church would you have us be in this world? Oh, we pray, Lord, because... See, we don't get to decide. It doesn't boil down to my personal sensibilities. It boils down to your standards, Jesus. Your word, your truth, your power to save. I stand before you as a hopeless sinner in need of grace. A man of brokenness. And I'm surrounded by sisters and brothers who are broken as well. And we say thank you, God, for your grace. And we pray that you might motivate us towards a more sophisticated, more balanced, more humble and convicted way so that everyone come to know the love of Jesus. That's our prayer. And we pray it in his name. Amen.